Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through this tricky part of the Bible. Lord, we thank you that all scripture has been breathed out by you and is useful for us, your people, in all generations. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at this part of scripture where some things are not fully known, that you would continue to speak to us with clarity and that we would leave here having heard from you, the living God. That's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of weeks ago, my dad, who's in his mid-70s, got a letter from a debt-collecting company. And I just want to read you the start of the letter. Dear Sir, Madam, the amount above remains unpaid. If you do not make full payment within seven days of the date of this letter, I will instruct the solicitor of the debt enforcement group to present a petition to the High Court to begin bankruptcy procedures without further warning. You should be aware that once a petition is filed with the court, this may cause all bank accounts belonging to the named debtors to be frozen. If the debt is not paid, the next action will be filing the petition. This letter gave my dad sleepless nights, really troubled him, it really worried him. He had no recollection of owing money, But at the same time, this was a very, very frightening letter for him to receive. And when Paul writes his letter to the Thessalonians, they are in a little bit of a crisis situation like my dad was. They are unsettled and they are alarmed. And the reason why they're so unsettled, which by the way, unsettled in the Greek, it's this this idea of being mentally disturbed. And the word alarmed in the Greek, it's this idea of being absolutely terrified. The reason why they're so alarmed and the reason why they're so terrified is because they have received a letter, supposedly from the Apostle Paul, saying that the day of the Lord had already come. If you're not familiar with the day of the Lord, if you you read through the Bible, you'll see it's a day in the future when God comes to earth. And he does two things when he comes. He, he gathers his people to himself. He saves his people and vindicates them. But he also judges the wicked. And he judges sin. And he judges and punishes those who rebelled against him. In Jeremiah 46, verse 10, for example, it says, But the, that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty. A day of vengeance for vengeance on his foes. The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. Do you see the language of judgment? Then in Ezekiel, another passage which talks about it. For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And again, another verse, and there's lots of verses like this. Joel 1.15, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The Thessalonians were terrified because they believed that the day of the Lord had come based on the letter that Paul had written. Now, there's debate amongst theologians about how the day of the Lord and the return of Christ plays together. Some theologians say that Christ will come first and that he'll gather his people to himself and then the day of the Lord will happen after. There'll be judgment after that. And some theologians say that it will happen simultaneous, that Christ will return and at that exact time, the day of the Lord will arrive, that that at that time, in one instant, God will bring his people to himself and judge the nations. But whatever way it puts it, the Apostles' Creed makes us aware what 
will happen on the day of the Lord. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the Thessalonians, they've received a letter, and it's meant to be from Paul, and it says that the day of the Lord has come. It's a scam letter, but they've believed it. Now, why are they frightened? Why are they terrified? Why are they alarmed? It's because they've not been gathered to Christ. They believe that Christ is returned and, and they've not been gathered to him. They've not been saved. And so they're now afraid that they're about to face the judgment and the wrath of God. They're now afraid that they're not really Christians. They're now afraid that, that they're not going to receive the salvation that comes on that day. But Paul writes to them in verses 1 and 2. And he lets them know that they've been a victim of a scam letter and that they're not to be unsettled or alarmed. Have a look at verses one and two. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled. Don't be mentally disturbed or alarmed. Don't be, prof don't be terrified by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Hey, listen, Thessalonians, don't be alarmed anymore. Don't be frightened anymore. We did not send you such a letter. This message that you've believed, it's not come from us. What a relief it must have been for them to read that. What a relief it must have been for them to read that. The message you received at the day of the Lord is here. It's a hoax. It's a scam. It's, it's a scam letter from a debt collecting agency. Now, one of the things that's hard for us kind of reading this is we are kind of banging our heads going, how did they fall for this? Like, how did they believe the day of the Lord had come? I mean, Paul in his last letter had made it really clear some of the things that had to happen before Christ returned. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 and 16, he said that those, do you remember, who had fallen asleep would be raised to life. That hadn't happened, had it? He also said that in 5.3 that sudden destruction would come upon their neighbors. And again, that hadn't happened. He also said in 4.16 that there'd be a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and a trumpet call from God. And again, that hadn't happened. None of these things that Paul said were going to happen, it happened. He'd made it really clearly what to expect before Jesus returned. None of those things had happened. And yet the Thessalonians had fallen for this scam letter. So why did they believe it? Why did they believe the scam? Why did they believe the hoax letter when they had the truth? As I've read this week, um, a lot of commentaries, different commentators and Bible experts come up with all sorts of complicated reasons why they believed the letter. But I think there's a very simple reason why they believed the letter. The reason they believed that it was because it's very easy to fall for false teaching. It's just easy to fall for false teaching. It's just easy, isn't it, to fall for a scam letter like my dad got? It's easy to fall for that. Well, similarly, it's easy to fall for false teaching. In this moment in the history of the world, we live in the most connected time that's ever been. 
You know, you can go on the internet later and you can go and you can listen to a sermon that was preached in Singapore this morning or, or a sermon that was preached in Canada. You can go on and you can listen to sermons and Bible teaching from all over the world. The internet gives us access to so much information, to so many books, to so many blogs, to so many sermons, to so many radio programs. And we're in a culture just now that is putting the church under pressure to abandon what the Bible says. We're in a culture just now which is putting pressure on churches to just ditch the parts of the Bible that don't line up with their values and with their views. We're in the world just now that's putting pressure on churches to to ditch anything in the Bible that might be remotely offensive. And there are Bible teachers who are doing this. They're twisting and distorting the scriptures to make it more palatable in society. And they're saying things that sound so attractive to a culture that doesn't want the truth of the word. They're twisting it, they're distorting it, they're making it sound lovely. These teachers teach things like everyone's gonna be saved. Don't worry about putting your trust in Jesus. At the end of the day, we're all gonna be saved. They teach things like there's many paths to God, that it doesn't matter what religion you follow or what path is yours, you know, there's many paths and as long as you're on a path, you're, you're gonna get there. They teach that sexuality outside of marriage should be accepted within the church. They teach that God's will for your life is that you're healthy and happy and rich. And if you're not, there's something wrong. There's some who teach that because you're forgiven in Christ, there's no need to obey Christ. That because you've received forgiveness, there's no need to live his way. There's some that teach that you can be a follower of Jesus and don't need the community of the church. I wonder have you come across those things? That's just a handful. There's, there's thousands of things that these false teachers are teaching. And I just want to put this out there this morning that it's really easy to fall for false teaching. It's really easy to fall for teaching that's not biblical, that's not the truth. And I just want you to be aware of that. Maybe you're scratching your head and thinking, well, Marty, how do I kind of guard myself against that? How do, I, how do I keep myself safe from that? Well, I think we can turn to a man called J.C. Ryle, a preacher and a pastor of a completely different era. And, and I think he has the best advice I've read on this. It's gonna be on the screen there. He says this, what is the best safeguard against false teaching? Beyond all doubt, the regular study of the Word of God with prayer for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The Bible was given to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. The man who reads it aright will never be allowed to greatly err. It is neglect of the Bible which makes so many pray to the first false teacher whom they hear. J.C. Ryle says if you want to be alert to false teaching, then, then you need to get into the Bible and you need to read it. And you need to understand it and you need to have a, a good grasp of it. I heard another good illustration and it talked about, you know, someone who's interested in watches and likes buying watches. And he says, the best way to spot a counterfeit watch is not to study counterfeits. It's to study the real thing. It's to know what a real Rolex is like on the inside and the outside. It's to study it and to understand it so that you know that so well that when you see a counterfeit, you can spot it a mile away. But here in Thessalonians, they, they'd fallen for false teaching and it's an easy thing to do. And I want to encourage you this morning to be people who, who study the real thing, 
you take time in the word and know what it says, grow in your love and your knowledge of the scriptures. Anyway, after kind of we see the crisis and we then see Paul move on to the correction, he corrects them and he says, listen guys, the, the, the day of the Lord is not here yet. It hasn't arrived. And before it does, two things must happen. So look at verse three with me. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Now, do you see what the two things are, he says? He says, listen, guys, I know you're worried about the day of the Lord. I know you're worried that it's been, but it hasn't been because there are two things that must happen before it comes. The first thing he says that must happen is that if you have a look, the rebellion occurs. You might be scratching your head thinking, Marty, what is that? Well, I can't give you an exact answer. But what it seems to me from, from my reading this week is that before Jesus comes back and before the day of the Lord arrives, that there is going to be a great apostasy, a great turning away from God. There's going to be a great apostasy within the church. There's going to be a great apostasy within society. It seems that there is going to be a, a big, huge rush of apostasy. The people are going to turn away from God, where it's going to be a very a weird thing to be someone who follows God. And it seems that this is going to be one massive, huge wave that's going to happen. Apostasy's always existed in the life of the church, hasn't it? Jesus taught that it would happen when he, when he did the parable of the, the soils, and two of the soils were, were soils that would lead to apostasy. Some people would turn away when persecution came. Some people would also turn away because they'd just be enticed by the ways of the world and they, they turn away from the truth after these things. Jesus taught that apostasy would happen. We also see apostasy in the lives of the disciples, don't we? We see temporary apostasy in Peter. I don't know him. I don't know him. He turns away from the Lord and then he's restored and we also see permanent apostasy in Judas. Apostasy is nothing new. Apostasy has always been a thing. There have always been people who look like they're following God who, who seem to turn away from him. And in our society today, there is apostasy, isn't there? We see it. It's really sad. There's even a kind of genre of literature about this. There's people who were prominent Christians. They were pastors. They were worship leaders. They've turned away from the Lord and they're maximizing their profit from it by writing books, saying what happened and, and how they don't believe anymore. There's a whole movement of what's called deconstruction, asking question after question after questioning, dismantling your faith and never putting it back together. My guess is that many of you know people who've gone on that journey. Apostasy is in the world today. John Owen, another hero of the past, another wise man and biblical scholar, he, he says that apostasy, the journey to apostasy normally starts in three locations. It normally begins in one of three places. He says one place it starts is often a problem with doctrine. He says that apostasy can start whenever we start to have a problem with one part of the Bible or one particular thing. And instead of addressing that problem or instead of submitting to scripture, we, we let the, ourselves submit to that. 
So we don't believe a certain thing in the Bible or we struggle to believe a certain thing in the Bible and instead of just accepting it because it's God's word, we, we rebel against it. And eventually that leads to rebellion against God. John Owen puts it this way. He writes that apostasy begins with pride and vanity of the mind which refuses to bow before the authority of Scripture. Now there are parts of Scripture that we find hard. Some parts we find hard to take. Some parts we we do find hard to to get our heads around. But when we find those parts, we should go and we should study and we should learn and we should read. We shouldn't just let it lead to to ditching that part of the Bible. Another then place that that John Owen says can be a starting place for, for apostasy is to neglect worship. He says to have sloth and negligence in the area of worship. Sometimes people just drift away from God because they stop meeting with God's people. They stop coming to church and being reminded of who God is. They stop coming to church and singing God's praises. And just over time, out of sloth and laziness and neglect, they find their hearts far from the Lord. And then finally, John Owen says that another place that apostasy can begin is just in a longing for a different lifestyle. He says it can start from the love of the world and its passing pleasures. It's not that you've necessarily turned away from the Lord. It's just that you have turned towards other things that you want more. And you go after these and you follow these until eventually the Lord is nowhere. Emma's mum had a a dog called Rosie. Rosie's dead now. Um, But... But one day, Emma's mum lives down in the beach in Bangor, just on the beach, and they were down the beach, and, and um, Emma's mum threw the ball for Rosie, and Rosie swam out to get the ball, but the tide was going out. The tide was going out, and the ball kept going out, and the dog kept going after it. Come back! Come back! Come back! Rosie! Rosie! Come back! Not a chance. The dog kept swimming out and out and out following this ball until Joy, Emma's mum, was nowhere in sight really. Where the dog wasn't listening to her voice. And that can happen to us. That's how apostasy can work. We can just go after something and pursue it and pursue it and pursue it until the voice of Jesus is a very distant call. The good news for Rosie was that there was some... uh, of Ballyhome Yacht Club's finest lifeguards on offer and, and they got the, the speedboat out and they went and they, they hauled the big black Labrador in and they got it safe to shore. And I just want to encourage you this morning if you're out on the shore, Jesus is the lifeboat. He's there. You might be drifting, you might be far. But let me tell you, if you call out to him, he'll come and he'll just pick you up in the boat and he'll bring you back. You're never too far gone for Jesus. But at this time, before the return of Christ, there is going to be a great apostasy. There is going to be a great turning from the Lord, a great rebellion. And then the second thing that's going to happen is that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Um, You you can read a bit more about this in other parts of the Bible. You can read it about it in Revelation. You can read it about it in Matthew 24. But I mean, even with all the reading in the world, this is still pretty tricky to get our heads around. But, But that's what it says. It says that the man of lawlessness 
will be revealed. Have a look at verse 3 again. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Who is this man of lawlessness? What on earth is Paul talking about? One person I read this week said he's like Satan's superman. He's this figure who's going to come and he's going to be so powerful and he's going to be so attractive and he's going to be so charismatic and he's going to lead people to worship him instead of God. And again, you can see that in verse 4. He will oppose and exalt himself over and above everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And then if you have a look at verse 9, you see his power. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the works of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They will perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So, so Paul's saying, listen, there's going to be this man of lawlessness and he's going to be very powerful. And with the power of Satan, he's going to do miracles and signs and wonders. And he's going to set himself up as God and he's going to draw people to worship him. And then we see in verse 6 that, that the reason he's not here yet is because someone or something is holding him back. Verse 6, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed in the proper time. This man of lawlessness, he's, he's being held back from coming. But the good news is that when he does come, in fact, more, like, more, more correctly, whenever Jesus comes, this man of lawlessness will be destroyed. Have a look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This lawless one will look so powerful until Jesus comes and then Jesus will just go like this and the lawless one will fall over and be destroyed. Now, our minds, we, we want to kind of go, who is this? <laughs> who is this? And throughout church history, there's been many suggestions at one stage, it was suggested that Muhammad was the man of lawlessness. It's been suggested at some time that the Pope was the man of lawlessness. It was suggested that Martin Luther, the reformer, was the man of lawlessness. But the reality is that we don't know who this man of lawlessness is. And even trying to get our heads around this is difficult. But there is one part of this passage that I think does affect us today. And there is one verse which I think we should hone in on. I don't think we should worry too much about trying to work out who this is, but I think there's one part that we should look at carefully. And it's verse seven. In verse seven, Paul says, listen, the man of lawlessness has to come before Christ returns. But then he says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Listen, Thessalonians, Christ will not return until the man comes, until he's revealed. But be aware that right now, even now, as you live out your life on earth, his secret power is at work. The spirit of this lawless one is at work. The power of this lawless one is affecting the world. It's influencing people. And again, we see that, don't we? What is lawlessness? It's, it's rejecting rule, isn't it? If you're a lawless citizen, you don't obey the rules of the land. 
And here, this lawlessness, it's, it's those who, who set themselves up against God. And again, we see this in the world. We see this everywhere, don't we? You don't need to obey God. And even the things we see in society now, it's almost like they're, they're purposely trying to, to go against any good thing that God has said. And we see it in the church and we see it in our lives. There's often this temptation to reject God's law and his rule and just live our way instead of his way. Folks, we need to be aware that there is a power which will be trying to influence us away from living God's way. Then Paul moves on, and having kind of corrected them, he then brings them comfort. So they've been frightened, they've been scared that they're going to face God's judgment. They're wondering, are we going to be saved? Are we, are we for salvation or are we for the wrath of God? They're frightened and terrified at the start of the letter. But then look what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. But we ought to always thank God for you brothers loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, God shows you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey Thessalonians, you're afraid of facing God's wrath. You're, you're afraid of facing the day of judgment. You're afraid of facing the day of the Lord. I've just reminded you that it can't happen. It's not happened. But listen, let me now comfort you. You are loved by God. You are loved by God, Paul says in verse 13. And then he says something even more comforting. Because, why are you loved? Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. God has chosen you to be saved. Before you chose him, he chose you. Before you decided to trust him, he decided that he was going to save you. This is in his eternal plan to save you from his judgment. And then how can you be sure that you're saved? Well, there's evidence, the sanctifying work of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Look at your lives. Look at how God is working in them. He's making you more like Jesus. He's sanctifying you. He's making you more holy. And look at your belief. You're continuing to believe and to trust in the gospel. This morning, I just want to highlight that that's the evidence this morning for you. If you're panicking and worrying about your faith, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? They're the two things to look for. Are you trusting Jesus? Are you continuing to trust him for your salvation? Are you relying on him for forgiveness? And do you see yourself being sanctified? Do you see yourself changing? Do you know God's work in your life to make you more like Christ? And then he also says how all this happened. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel. Hey Thessalonians, you have heard the good news and you responded. You heard the good news and it went from your ears down to your heart and, and you came to faith in Christ. You've heard and responded to the gospel. And our gospel is that Jesus saves his people through faith. And listen Thessalonians, let me just point you to your future. It's not judgment. It's that you're going to share in the glory of Christ. Look at 14, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, in, the, in the ancient world, whenever um, people went to war and they won the battle, 
Very often they would come into their city and behind them would be all the kind of prisoners of war. All the, the prisoners that they took and it would, it would show the glory of the army. Look at all these people who we have taken captive. Well, it's going to be a kind of similar picture but different when Christ returns. It's like we'll follow behind him and we'll share in his glory because he's going to turn to look at all these I've saved. Look at all these I rescued. Look at all these I forgave. It's going to be this wonderful picture. We're going to share in the glory of Jesus. He's going to be glorified through saving sinners like us. And then finally in verses 15 to 17, Paul gives them a command and a closing. And the command is one for us. In a world that would rather we didn't live for Jesus, in a world that would rather we turn from him, in a world that rather we would be lawless, he says, verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Stand firm. Stand firm under pressure to turn from God. Stand firm under pressure to be lawless. Stand firm and hold to the teachings. And then he closes with a blessing and a prayer. May our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 16 himself, and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Folks, we live in a world that would rather we didn't live for Jesus. But let's pray that God would encourage us to stand firm and to live for him. Let's pray before we sing. Father, this is a, a tricky part of the Bible and we have many questions about many of the details. But Lord, we thank you that you're a God who has saved those who trust in Christ. Thank you that you're a God who saves your people from your wrath. Thank you, Lord, that when Christ returns, that we'll be gathered to him as people who will receive salvation. And Father, I just pray this morning for anyone here who's not responded to the gospel, who's not put their hope in Christ, who right now may be fearful of the day of the Lord, that you would have the ears, that you would give them ears to hear the truth and to respond. And Father, I pray too this morning for anyone who is out like the dog, who's out at sea and lost and drifting, that they would call on you and know that you will draw them back to yourself. Lord, thank you for your word this morning to us. Help us to believe it and to live in light of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.